I was first elected in 1982. By 1997, I was the absolute expert, the queen of opposition. There was nothing I didn't know about being in opposition, but there was nothing I knew about being in government. What are some of the tough things which will show rewards in three, four, five years' time that you want to do early? All those sorts of things require you to have done preparation. Hello and welcome to Preparing for Power, a special inside briefing podcast brought to you by the Institute for Government. The days, weeks and months ahead are going to be dominated by opinion polls and campaign slogans, policy pledges and manifesto launches. But what about the morning after election night? Whoever forms the next government will need to be prepared and the job begins almost as soon as the votes have been counted. So what's it like to go from opposition to government overnight? How do civil servants get ready for the possibility of a transition of power or of a hung parliament? And what is it like for a governing party to continue in power after a bruising campaign? In this series, the Institute for Government takes you behind the scenes to find out how our politicians, their advisers and officials block out the noise of a general election campaign to get ready for being in government. We'll be speaking to former ministers, special advisers and senior civil servants to discover how they prepared for that all-important election result and its aftermath, to hear their secrets and to work out the lessons for 2024. I'm Emma Norris, Deputy Director at the Institute for Government. In this episode, we'll be looking at how opposition parties prepare for government. There's lots to be done. Working out policy priorities, turning those policies into plans that can be delivered, agreeing the content for a First King's speech, getting to grips with how departments work, access talks with the civil service and preparing shadow ministers and advisers for the scale of the transition into government. Yet the party's number one focus will always be winning the election. The last time the Labour Party fought an election after so long out of power was in 1997. Harriet Harman had been an MP for 15 years at this point. She told us how her focus remained on the campaign, even though some of her shadow cabinet colleagues had started to think about what might come next. Not all my colleagues in the 97 cabinet were doing the same as me. A lot of them, or at least some of them, I could see that they'd kind of switched off campaigning and they'd gone into preparing for government mode. And I felt very critical of them. And I thought, well, that's all very well. You're leaving us to try and get you into government so you can swan in and be all ready and you're gilding yourself for office. But we're not in government yet. Actually, what they were doing was sensible. So when they arrived, they were completely prepared. And I arrived unprepared. So I think there is something about recognising that even if you're not going to you know, it's, it's, not, it's never certain you're going to get elected. You've got to start getting yourself into the mode of what you're going to do in government and put your time into that. And I kind of wrote that off as complacency. It wasn't complacency. It was sensible planning. And it stood them in good stead and stood me in really bad stead. But Jonathan Powell, former chief of staff to Tony Blair, told us that Harmon wasn't the only Labour politician concentrating on the campaign in 1997. I was up in the constituency along with Alistair and Andrew with uh, Tony Blair for the election results. That was the first time Tony was prepared to think about government because he didn't want to be measuring the curtains. So he wouldn't uh, engage. And actually, Robert Butler became quite suspicious that David Miliband and I were just making all this stuff up about our first day priorities. So he insisted on seeing Tony at his house in Islington to try and quiz him on it. And actually turned up with a questionnaire, but I can't remember how many questions. So he just wouldn't engage. He just, just said, no, no, I, I agree with what everything that uh, Jonathan and David have been saying. And he had to leave it at that. Blair was fully focused on the campaign, but he trusted his close advisers to be looking ahead beyond the election to a time when they might be in government. 
With little time and few resources available, how can oppositions find a balance between campaigning to win an election and preparing to enter government? The brilliant people you've got that are going to form the core of your government are just focusing on the election campaign. And that is right. That is the right thing to do. In the run-up to the 2015 general election, Wes Ball helped lead the Labour team preparing for government. You do need another team that can think in a much more prosaic, programmatic, managerial sense about how you're going to do it. What are the choices that you're going to have to face in the first few days, few weeks, few months, so that there is a plan that you can provide to people to get going with when you do that. This team helps create a bit of a firewall between the campaign and those thinking about what might come after the polls closed. That's one of the lessons that we learned from the 2009-10 experience was the need to separate out your team that's thinking about how you will run the government, how you will deliver the policies that you've put in your manifesto, the other commitments that you've made. We were thinking about how to separate that out from the politics. The challenge for the opposition is developing policies that will win them votes on the campaign trail, but will also work in practice if they end up in government. Sir Oliver Letwin was Shadow Minister and then Minister for Government Policy under David Cameron. He was leading the Conservative Party's process to develop new policies and give voters a sense of what they would do in office. When David Cameron was first elected leader in 2005, so that's five years before the general election, we had two problems. We had many problems, but we had, we had two problems in particular that related to policy and the transition. The first was that we didn't have any policies. And the second was that we wanted to change the voice in which the party spoke to the nation. Oppositions need to develop policies, identify priorities, deal with trade-offs, and then think through how those policies can actually be implemented. None of that can be done quickly. The first phase, which lasted for about half the, the period, about rather more than two years, was a very wide-ranging policy review, the intent of which was not to form highly specific policies for manifestos or for implementation in government, but to open up a whole series of thinking on a whole series of issues which the party had not attended to sufficiently or not attended to in the right way, argue, for some years. Opposition parties make policy not just as a statement of intent, but also to influence how voters perceive them. Kate Fall, now Baroness Fall, was David Cameron's deputy chief of staff as the 2010 election approached. When David became leader of the party, it was sort of presumed he wouldn't be as he'd only been MP for one term. And there was a sense of the party sort of talking to itself. Certainly the strong policy narratives were, you know, tax cuts and immigration, Europe, and they're all familiar themes for a Tory party. But I think when David came in, his view was let's actually talk about other issues that are maybe more concerning on the doorstep for people. So once he once he became party leader, he set about also both doing and showing, he hoped, or that was the idea, that he was different. So whether it was sort of going to see Huskies, as was famously seen, or he'd do Cameron Direct. In those days, that was quite radical. Go do a town hall, talk to people about what they think. Webcam, I mean, all this sounds quite old-fashioned now, but we'd put on videos and we tried to make him very accessible. And in reviewing policies and working to change public perceptions, a party will often find commitments that no longer fit. Oppositions make policy commitments that hang around for a long time that are based on a whole load of reasons that aren't to do with good government. Wes Ball helped lead Labour's preparations for government ahead of the 2015 election. They're kind of like 
political trade-offs, political signals, they haven't thought them through, you know, the pressure from a particular group in the backbenches or something like that. And they're just hanging them all together into a tree that looks like a tree is quite difficult. My team spent a lot of time working with advisors and working with the Shadow Cabinet members individually to think through how those policies would hang together as a plan within a department, a plan for government, a plan that had a manifesto that told a story that was true to Labour's values and something that could be delivered. Abandoning some old policies and focusing on new ones that are fit for government is a time-consuming task. But as an election approaches, time is in short supply. If the opposition do enter government, time will become even scarcer. Here's Sally Morgan, Tony Blair's former political secretary. If I'm honest and think back about, for example, health, I don't think we really did detailed policy work till 1999 on health, really. We were a bit too focused on reversing the Tory position and thinking that somehow that would solve things. And it took us a while to realise that didn't. We were so focused on building up support in the country. I don't think we did prepare so well for government. We had the big announcements and the big very, very tight knowledge of some very, very big announcements. You know, so I think Gordon and the Treasury, and I think in some areas we knew that they were big things and we were going to definitely move forward on them. So for example, national minimum wage was a big issue. The key to navigating these pressures is prioritisation. Perhaps the single most important thing for a prime minister and a team coming in is to be clear what their priorities are. Jonathan Powell worked as Tony Blair's chief of staff, both in opposition and in government. The difficulty with government is it is driven by events. As Macmillan said, events, dear boy, events. So if you're Prime Minister, you're sitting there and you've got an entry of things coming at you, constant crises, wars. Unless you've got three clear priorities, you're constantly trying to move down the track. You'll find by the time you finish being Prime Minister, you haven't actually achieved any of the things you wanted to do. You've simply been handling crises. So having those priorities clear in your head before you go in, clear what you want to try and achieve. And maybe with a mission-led government, as they're proposing, maybe with five missions, they could try and build a government structure around that that will make them deliver it. But that issue of priorities, because people try and do too much. You, government has to do everything, but a prime minister doesn't have to do everything. He can have three, four things he's trying to achieve. If it's more than that, he won't achieve it in one term. So being clear about those priorities strikes me as absolutely crucial. And having a few clear priorities allows a new government to hit the ground running. If you're going to do anything radical, do it early on. I mean, Machiavelli is very clear about that. Do, do it early when you've got the political capital and then you can reap the benefit of it later. And we didn't do that. We were very cautious. No Labour government had won two full terms. We wanted to do so. And the Roy Jenkins thing about the precious egg and carrying it across the slippery floor is exactly how we felt. We asked Sally Morgan what drove Labour's priorities ahead of the 1997 election. They were driven by the centre... But in cooperation, I would say, with the Chateau, you know, it was, it was done together. But I suppose the drive of what are the big announcements was very much driven from the centre. The how and the detail, much more in the department. Hitting the ground running and making the most of the political capital a new government has coming into office requires planning. In 1997, Jonathan Powell and the Labour opposition developed a 100-day plan, including their key announcements and actions mapped out day by day. But they also took their planning a few steps further. I learned from America that a 100-day plan in itself is not enough. I mean, what tends to happen is you set out your 100-day plan, you announce all your great announcements, and then you collapse in exhaustion. It's usually the summer by that stage and everyone goes on holiday and you, then you, the government is a bit becalmed. 
So it's a good idea to have a second 100-day plan as well in your pocket, ready to pick up where the first one lands off. And because we had that 100-day plan and a second 100-day plan, it gave us that political momentum that allowed us to do things like Northern Ireland. If you hadn't done that for a position of strength with political capital at the beginning, he'd never have got the peace process done. And, and small changes like changing prime minister's questions. You know, there used to be two prime minister's questions a week at 15 minutes. We consolidated it to one for half an hour, which gave time for the prime minister to travel around the country, which otherwise prime ministers can't do during parliamentary session because they're going to be there the whole time. So it's changes like that that you um, need to move. What I regret is I regret that we didn't, we weren't bold enough in public service reform early on. We had that political capital. We should have used it then to make those changes rather than waiting later because the longer you leave it, the less political capital you have and the harder it is to change difficult things in government. In 1997, this leadership from the centre and detailed development of a few priority policy areas meant Labour were able to make progress on policies such as the minimum wage and Bank of England independence within weeks of taking office. Fast forward 13 years, and as the 2010 election approached, the Conservative Party also turned its attention to the details of how policies would be implemented, developing legislation, timetables and priorities. Here's Oliver Letwin again. It was transforming a set of interesting propositions into a set of implementable, carefully conceived and costed policies that we could take to the civil service and say, this is what we would like to do. We went into a lot of detail and there was draft legislation produced for education, health and much else besides. And in the case of education, the Conservative Party had policies and a plan to deliver them, built up and ready to go. So, for example, in education, we had ideas about free schools and ways of having schools become more rigorous and more independent. And that was worked out in very considerable detail with Michael Gove and his team. Within three months of the 2010 election, the coalition government had passed the Academies Bill, paving the way for thousands of schools to become academies in the coming years. The Conservatives had developed plans across a range of areas and discussed them with the civil service as part of access talks, which laid the foundations for their first years in government. Francis Morden and I organised a process with colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet to turn the policies that had been involved in that later stage of the Parliament into a series of detailed agendas for each department, which we call departmental business plans. And we went through those very specifically, not just with the Shadow Cabinet, but also with the permanent secretaries of the departments that, that they will get to be the cabinet ministers of if we took over, respectively. So, skipping ahead, with some suitable amendments because of the nature of the coalition, actually those business plans did become the framework for government during the first couple of years of the coalition. Another aspect of preparations is the need for parties to think through what they do if there was a hung parliament after the election. Whilst preparing for this is important for all parties, in 2010 the Liberal Democrats had developed their policies and written their manifesto specifically with this situation in mind. Polly McKenzie was Nick Clegg's Director of Policy and part of the team that negotiated the coalition agreement following the 2010 election. I think the politics of it made it much easier for the Liberal Democrats to have a public stance on what we would do. And because we could have a public stance, we could then do the work without anybody sort of worrying that it would get leaked. I think the Conservative Party had to be so clear that they were going for a majority. But just as, I guess, during the Brexit referendum, David Cameron was like, we are not doing any preparation for leave. He couldn't possibly do preparation for coalition. And, and the same was really true for the Labour Party. 
And with limited recent experience of multi-party government in Westminster, the Lib Dems looked further afield for advice in 2010. There had been a long-standing coalition between Labour and the Liberal Democrats in Scotland. And Jim Wallace, who had been the Deputy First Minister during that coalition, was very close with Danny Alexander, who was Nick Clegg's Chief of Staff and sort of lead negotiator and leader of the manifesto, leader of basically everything, really. And they had done a lot of work thinking through operationally, both how would you negotiate? And then if you were to go into a coalition, once we got into those talks, certainly Jim's experience and documents actually from that Labour Lib Dem coalition were used extensively in our thinking. Preparing policies and conveying a vision for government is just part of the challenge in opposition. For a shadow minister, winning an election means becoming a minister overnight and taking on a job that really is like no other. It means leading a department of thousands of civil servants, often tens of thousands of public sector employees, and delivering policies that affect the lives of millions of people. But when a party that's been in opposition for more than a decade comes into power, many of the new ministers will have little or no experience of being in government, as Jonathan Powell recalls. We prepared the shadow cabinet. You know, it'd been 18 years since Labour had been in power before, and there's almost no one who had been in a ministerial drawing. So we needed to think about how they could adapt to the idea of governing. Many of them had never run anything in their lives. They'd come from different professions, but not actually running things. So we set up a team. Patricia Hewitt played a role. We got some consultancy people. We got some former civil servants, former permanent secretaries to sit and uh, work with them. Some were a bit allergic to doing this. John Prescott wasn't prepared to, uh, God Brown didn't. But most of the rest did, and I think they did learn things from it. Former ministers can be an invaluable source of advice for those starting out in the job. But after a long period out of power, much of the way government works and the people working in it will have changed. Harriet Harman remembers a shadow cabinet training session in Oxford, ahead of the 1997 election, where some former ministers weren't tuned in to how things had changed since their time. It was a couple of people from the previous Labour government, which had been in 1979, which had not been recently. And they were sort of, they seemed like people from a previous era who had nothing in common with me and had nothing in common with our agenda. One previous former minister was desperately trying to explain to us the difference between the private office and the rest of the civil service, which is quite an important distinction to understand. So his immediate thing to reach for was, well, when you're a minister, if you have an affair, your private office would know, but you could expect them not to tell the rest of the department. You know, there I was, a sort of mum with three young children, and I thought, this is really not useful information for me. You know, whoever he's talking to, it's not me. And it's just a different planet, a different way of doing things. You know, there was a complete cultural divide. So you can't assume any easy cultural transmission of information. The current shadow cabinet do have some advantages. Three have run government departments before as Secretary of State. And Keir Starmer's previous role as Director of Public Prosecutions is an equivalent grade to Permanent Secretary. But since the Labour Party were last in power, there have been substantial changes in how government worked. Changes in communication due to social media and WhatsApp, large cuts to civil service staff numbers in the early 2010s, followed by an equally large re-expansion in the workforce since, and major changes to the structure of Whitehall departments and their arm's-length bodies. We've had Brexit and Covid, and of course now the nation's faltering public finances. Even for shadows who have been ministers before, government's unlikely to be the same as they remember it. But as Jonathan Powell told us, the current opposition do have another big advantage. They're in a better position now because they have Sue Gray there, who's 
much more senior, much more experienced of government who can sit with the staff who will be coming in and, uh, and explain to them much more about how it's going to be, how it's going to work, and you know, et cetera, the cabinet office for that long period of time. So I think the advantage the Keir Starmer team will have over us. Sue Gray is a former senior civil servant and now Starmer's chief of staff. And in government, the prime minister's chief of staff is their most important political advisor and is extremely influential. They advise the prime minister on policy, on strategy and party management, oversee special advisors across government, and manage operations at the centre of government. Thatcher was the first Prime Minister to appoint a Chief of Staff, David Wolfson. He resigned in 1985 and the post remained unfilled, until Jonathan Powell came in. Tony Blair recruited me in 1994 to be his Chief of Staff when he became leader. And I think in doing that, he was looking to sort of send a signal that he was serious about going into government. Now, I was a relatively junior government official. I was in the diplomatic service in the embassy in Washington. And I think some, one of the uh, reasons they chose me was I'd spent a couple of years following Bill Clinton around on the campaign trail, and New Democrats and New Labour were quite similar. So he recruited me to come in to try and put some order into his office, which barely existed when I arrived and had no funding and so on, and then to try and make it a serious operation, and then do also some preparation for government. That was one of the reasons he wanted me. A challenge for both the current opposition and parties in the past has been tackling issues that cut across departmental boundaries. Harriet Harman was Shadow Social Security Minister in 1997. She told us how working with the Shadow Education team on a shared policy area was far from straightforward. Quite a lot of the problem was my area of policy development involved other people's departments, which they liked not one bit. So basically, to get lone parents into work, you had to have childcare. And childcare was in David Blunkett's department. And he didn't want me having views about what his department spent its money on, understandably. And I was the Minister for Women, and one of the big demands for women was childcare. Well, David Blunkett didn't want to hear from me that women wanted childcare. It was a question of whether or not it was a priority for him within his department responsible for education. And we had this one rather awkward meeting where he was saying childcare is about children, which it obviously is. But I was saying childcare is also about women. But he clearly thought that the child must be at the centre and therefore I was arguing for something which was less important or even a distraction. The current opposition will face similar challenges if they want to hit the ground running on delivering missions-led government. Former Permanent Secretary Moira Wallace led a number of cross-departmental teams as a senior civil servant, including the Social Exclusion Unit and the Office for Criminal Justice Reform under New Labour. Here's her advice for the opposition on how to prepare for delivering on cross-cutting issues. I would say it would be a good investment of time to pick half a dozen issues that are cross-cutting and talk about how those are going to be managed. And I think the first challenge for the opposition is within their own structures, who's going to do that alongside a busy job. So if you want cross-cutting work to happen, resource it. I've had loads of cross-cutting jobs and in every case I've been fortunate that someone has said, do this, don't do it alongside something else, do this solo. It showed that the government was prepared to say, there is a thing that needs dealing with, there is no bit of government that has that as a job, let's give someone that job. And all the guidance I got on how to set it up was bring people in, you know, bring people from several different departments, bring people from the front line. We had people from the police, from probation, from local authority, social services, someone from the private sector, voluntary sector, put together a multidisciplinary team, come up with some proposals on what you're going to look at and then get on with it. 
Getting the right people into key posts, whether that's a minister, an advisor or a chief of staff, can make a huge difference to the first weeks and months of a new government. This means giving shadow teams time to master their briefs and for a leader resisting the temptation for a major reshuffle either in the run-up to polling day or on coming into government. Former Cabinet Secretary Gus O'Donnell told us how valuable it is when politicians stay in the same brief from opposition into government. You will have had the access talks with a particular shadow minister and you'll have started to build that relationship and understand their ideas about how they want to work and what they want to achieve. So it's great when they come in. I mean, one of the real challenges you have is if the Prime Minister on coming into government decides that they want to have a reshuffle straight away and you end up with somebody else in there who may have slightly different preferences and slightly different ways of doing things, then you start from ground zero. That's not great. As well as being given time to really grip their policy areas, Sally Morgan, who was a special advisor to Tony Blair in 1997, remembers the advantages of giving people time to work together and understand each other ahead of a possible transition. I think it's it's really important to have a network of people who tell you how it is. We'd all known him before he's prime minister, in a way, and I think that's very helpful. So that's not to say you're rude, but you're not over-deferential. It gives you the ability to say, oh, hang on, you've actually got to be seen doing this. You've got to get out there. I think it's much, much harder for people who come in and they are working for the Prime Minister, but not for somebody they've known before they're the Prime Minister. Parties that prepare for a possible transition of power will achieve more, faster in government. What are the things you need to do really early on? What can that wonderful mandate of winning an election allow you to do that you may not be able to do later? What are some of the tough things which will show rewards in three, four, five years' time that you want to do early? All those sorts of things require you to have done preparation. Otherwise, you start off and it's kind of, you're a bit lost for a while and you can't afford to be lost because it's a a moment when you have a great opportunity. Having seen the election up close in 2010, Gus O'Donnell also recognises that as the campaign ramps up in the months before an election, there's a danger that this preparation for government gets sidelined. The final word on this episode goes to Harriet Harman with her advice for the current opposition. I just did not spend enough time on it because I was so busy worrying that we would find ourselves in another 92 situation. Dedicate time to it. Don't think it's a waste of time. Don't think it's a distraction. And try and think what the public's going to expect to hear from you on that first day and in those first months. Thanks for listening to this episode of Preparing for Power from the Institute for Government. If you're in opposition and preparing for a potential transition or just want to find out more, then check out our website. You can find our recent Preparing for Government report and many more resources on how opposition parties should ready themselves for power. In our next episode, we'll be looking at how a governing party prepares for the election and if the voters put their trust in them again, what comes after it. I lived through the 1992 election. I was there when the polls were saying that Labour would win, the exit polls even were saying that Labour would win, and John Major returned as Prime Minister. Do not prejudge things. We are now facing a situation in which the incumbent government has been around for more than 14 years, and I suspect that it will find it extremely difficult to do the kind of work that oppositions can do that I see the Labour Party doing now. We'll be speaking to ministers, their advisers and senior civil servants about what it feels like inside government as the election approaches and how they manage the day-to-day running of the country alongside a gruelling election campaign. 
See you next time. <laughs>